Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm coming to you today from my home near Blaine Lake, Saskatchewan on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. I'm really excited today to be chatting with Roger Petrie, who is a professor of philosophy and the co-coordinator of RCE Saskatchewan. And RCE Saskatchewan is the Regional Centre of Expertise on Education for Sustainable Development. So welcome, Roger. Thanks for being here today. It's great to be here. Awesome. So just to start us off, Roger, could you just tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, who who you are, what you do, um, and maybe a bit about the journey that led you to where you are today? Sure. So I'm a philosophy professor at Luther College at the University of Regina, and my areas of interest have always been uh, ethics. And uh, I've also done one of my degrees was in philosophy, politics and economics uh, in Oxford. And so uh, when you have ethics uh, and you add it to economics, I think that's how you get sustainable development, Um, you know, because you're talking about how do you do development that brings in, for example, generations, other species, uh, poor and marginalized people, which are often the concern, central concerns of ethics. So, so, uh, so that's for sort of academically my interest. And, and you know, I've done a, some courses on, on philosophical issues in sustainable development and uh, sustainable livelihoods course. Um, but the other area I've had, I mean, I'm a teacher, so education is sort of near to, near and dear to my heart as a professor. And so uh, uh, starting back in 2007, um, we were acknowledged by the United Nations University to create this thing called a regional center of expertise on education for sustainable development. And and that was sort of a two-year consultation process with folks locally trying to figure out what is the kind of uh, education we need to address our local sustainability issues, right? Whether it's climate change or loss of wetlands or whatever it happens to be. Um, And so, uh, so that's kind of where I was involved because I was helping to organize one of these regional centers uh, through volunteerism. So we didn't, you know, it wasn't like a lot of resources coming in or anything. It was a sort of self-organized regional centers. And and the United Nations University, of course, is, uh, is this uh, kind of uh, global university. It's located in Tokyo, and it, it helps advance um, the UN sustainable development goals and kind of agenda. Um, and so that's kind of where I, I came in on all of this. Um, I personally have been working on sustainable development since 1994. <laughs> so it's been a long time uh, when a colleague and I at Luther College set up our own little center to focus on sustainability. So so that's a bit of where I've come from. But you can ask me more questions about that. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great, Roger. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, we kind of chatted about this before I hit record, but this concept of 
of, you know, these centers of expertise being, you know, collaborative in nature, right? Like there's, there's, okay. it takes, yeah, it yeah. takes, it takes many minds to, to, to make these things work. So, um, so you talked about this a little bit and I, I oh. think it would be interesting to dive into, um, you know, your, so I guess just to preface this a little bit, we've, we've asked this question about, um, you know, describing what sustainability means to you, um, sort of as a way to mm. have the podcast be kind of a living definition, a fluid living definition of the term sustainability, because depending on someone's background, um, or their area of expertise and work, the term sustainability is, uh, well, it's complex, and it can be used in lots of different ways. Um, and, and so, yeah, so we kind of are using our podcast as a bit sure, of a living okay. definition. Yeah. So if you could just share a bit okay, about so what, what do sustainability, I think? yeah, what do you think? What does sustainability mean to you? And how do you sort of incorporate okay, that okay. lens? Yeah, okay. So I, I think sustainable, sustainability, I mean, it does have that long-term focus, right? So I uh, embrace that notion of, you know, planning for seven generations into the future. I think that that's critical because our, our governments are very short-term. It's election cycles of four years. Businesses are often operating quarterly. <laughs> that's their kind of time horizon. And so to actually think over those long-term perspectives is what interests me. And as an academic, a professor, you know, a lot of discoveries and things would only happen if you had somebody researching something maybe 25 years of their life. And that's when they come up with a discovery. And then maybe 50 years later, somebody realizes how central that discovery is. You know, at the time it was useless. Now it's really important. So, um, and so I guess that's part of my notion is that, you know, really we need to think more long-term partly, of course, for our own well-being and all future obligations, but also uh, just it's a wise thing to do, right? Philosophy, the Greek means to be a lover of wisdom, philosophia, a lover of wisdom, and, and certainly living for at least your own lifetime and thinking, well, what do I want to be 50 years from now or so on is central to well-being uh, and planning your own life well, all right? Um, and there's a lot of prerequisites for that, right? If a person isn't hasn't had a good education or if they've grown up in poverty or they haven't had a breadth of experience. How do you even plan? How do, not only do you, how do you even know what you might want, but how do you then plan your own resources and things to get there? And as a community, how do you do that? So, so that's part of the perspective. Part of it, I guess, is those kind of poles of sustainable development. So I really embraced the Brundtland Commission going back to 1987, which really said, you know, we're two, dealing with two big issues. One, at the time, governments were dealing with uh, poverty. How do we how do we do development that actually affects the worst off citizens? Uh, because that's probably where our, mo our moral obligations are central. Um, and they were finding in the 80s, they were doing all this development, but sometimes it was actually harming the worst off. So, you know, they'd flood a valley uh, to make a large dam, hydroelectric dam, and displace villages that had left there, lived there for thousands of years. And, uh, and then these people had to go to cities where they didn't have any employment. Um, and so that was one feature. And then the other feature of Brentland was dealing with uh, environmental degradation. All right. So the question was, is there a way of doing development that improves people's livelihoods, particularly those of the worst off, 
and at the same time is not undermining uh, the environment. Because traditionally, people saw, well, it's a trade-off. If I do development, well, of course, I'm going to be getting rid of <laughs> forests or I'm going to be you know, getting rid of natural prairie or whatever it happens to be. And the idea is, no, we don't have to have it as a trade-off. Uh, you know, there's a lot of occupations we could pursue. You know, if you think of ecotourism, right, there's a classic mm-hmm. example where you build uh, you build employment and at the same time you improve ecosystems and you educate people <laughs> about it. So um, so that's so those are the two big pulls for me, because sometimes I find, you know, there's people who are, are focused on environmental sustainability and then they miss out entirely on the social side. Or you have people focusing on the social well-being side, and they completely miss out on the environmental side. And part of the part of the beauty of sustainable development is that you're pursuing multiple goals through single strategies, right? So the UN Sustainable Development Goals, where we have 17 goals, um, you know, you try and pursue paths that don't necessarily they aren't necessarily super effective at any one of those goals in particular. But if they move all of them along somewhat. Then, of course, you've had a major impact because if everybody's doing that, those effects are cumulative, right? They add up. Uh, so I guess that's that's for me the, the beauty of it is thinking of things holistically. Uh, and as a philosopher, of course, that's what we, we do. That's our job. Uh, you know, we're the one discipline in the university that that is meant to think across borders and, and innovate. You know, we love the wicked problems and sustainability just throws up one wicked problem after another. So. Or, or yeah. not wicked, transformative, challenging yes. problems. Yeah, yeah. Com- okay. Complex so that's kind problems. Of my view. Yeah. <laughs> Complex problems. Complex problems that you have to think a lot about, but then there'll often be a, a one or two strategies that are just great if you spend enough time thinking about it. Unfortunately, our institutions aren't really designed for that kind of in-depth thinking in an integrated way. So I, I really like that idea of a whole institution approach to sustainable development and a whole society approach where we, underst- we get to understand the interrelationships uh, and we spend more time thinking deeply about what we ultimately want in terms of human well-being or in terms of ecosystem health uh, and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, a lot of, thank you for sharing all that. A lot of what you said, um, you know, really, really resonates with me. I, I remember starting my university degree in environmental science. And at that time, um, you know, this was a, a little over 10 years ago, almost 12 years ago now, I guess. Um, I remember at that time, uh, a lot of what we were studying and the way we were studying it um, was kind of in these silos, right? It was was really um, focused on a particular understanding of the problem and not really thinking about things holistically. And I think we're starting to get to the point now where we're thinking about these things more holistically, the actions or the way things are are playing out in terms of policy and, and um, you know, implementation are still have a ways to go, I would say, in terms of being holistic and focusing on, um, you know, focusing on both the environment and, and human well-being and human rights and, and those types of things. But we're getting there. And I think these conversations, I'm sure in, in, as you said, in, in 1994, um, you know, these conversations were likely not happening in, in the same level of, of the public 
realm as they are today. So we're getting there, right? Like that's kind of where, um, yeah, that's kind of where these things start, right? So um, it's slow, but we're we're moving. <laughs> Well, and that's what an RCE, what an RCE does, actually. The whole concept of an RCE is that it links uh, different organizations together. It helps people within organizations find like-minded individuals within those organizations. And so particularly connecting uh, school systems, university, you know, post-secondary polytechnics to the broader community. So that's businesses to non-governmental organizations, to cities, towns, the province, and so on. Um, and getting people to focus collaboratively on the issues that matter within your region, because our regions as RCEs are self-defined, right? It isn't, it isn't political boundaries. It's what are the boundaries that make sense? So what are the ecosystem boundaries that make sense? What are the livelihood patterns? Uh, the UN University has this ideal idea that an RCE should be no bigger than what it takes for people to come together and get back home on the same day. So what right. that means in Saskatchewan is very different from what it means in India, <laughs> right? How big a region you can have is determined by people's ability to not waste resources by, you know, having spent stay overnight and do things that are costly, but, uh, but also, you know, realizing that in the world of sustainability, it's not a, it's not a competitive space, right? Because we're dealing with the long-term future where there's a lot of uncertainty where you can't even plan for managing risks and so on, because there's just so many unknowns. So what you want to do is collaborate together to build up the resources um, collectively so that once it gets to the space where it's in the near future, of course, you know, you can compete over that, but it's a question of creating abundance, right? Sustainable development, if it's done well, creates abundance for everybody, but we don't necessarily know right off the bat who will benefit or not. Um, and that's why, you know, having a lot of a lot of groups and individuals contributing small amounts into collaborative kind of activities. I, that seems to be where how it works best. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting that you you're kind of sharing that, you know, from a global perspective as well, because I think one of the things we found in various conversations through this podcast and then some of the feedback we've got from listeners is is that exact concept, this idea that, you know, as an individual, um, it's pretty hard to focus on all of the things like it's just there's there's a lot um and you know each of us can only do so much so you know finding those areas those niche areas where your skills and expertise and and passions can fit and knowing that you're a part of this larger larger network or, or collaborative efforts that's working towards the same kind of umbrella goal but you're doing your part, right? And so I yeah, think you're, that... And you're trying things, right? It's it's about trying. I mean, the, part of the challenge is there's so many unknowns that that you end up discovering what you don't know by doing things, right? So I have a colleague, uh, academic colleague, who says, you know, instead of doing ready, aim, fire, uh, where it's normally ready, aim, 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 and never doing anything, it's like, he says, do ready, fire, aim because it's in the trying that you end up discovering all the unknowns or parameters of your system that then allow you to refine your strategy 
or discover maybe something better that you should be doing, right? Maybe you were not even focusing on the right goal at all. So, so it's uh, so I think that's important. The other thing about community, and this is where the RCEs are so important. We now have 180 RCEs globally that have been acknowledged by the United Nations University, and those all of those RCEs were volunteer. There's no money coming from anybody uh, except from the local community uh, and organizations. And most of our, our work is in kind contributions, whether it's individuals or organizations. And so, so that's a huge success story, but it's also, um, I think a model of a new model of scholarship uh, because we need to discover new things. And, and so for the universities and schools and polytechnics, to think, oh, wait a second, we're, we are innovators, right? We're, we're supposed to be asking the best questions and following those up, but the best questions are emerging within our communities as they confront these sustainability issues. And so we're, you need a platform for the community expertise to work with you know, scholarly expertise um, and mutually legitimize and benefit uh, each other, because really the whole the whole canvas is a living laboratory. Our our region is a living laboratory, and so and that's an interesting concept because you know traditional laboratories were artificial environments. Took a lot of energy to create them. Takes a lot of money to fund them. A lot of instrumentation. Whereas a living laboratory, the la the community provides the laboratory, the ecosystem provides the laboratory, and as an RCE, you can discover as much or more with a lot less work and energy and resources. Once you see your own community and your own campus as living laboratories, yeah, absolutely, and. Um... Yeah, that's exactly, you know, the importance of this kind of transition or, or change, I guess, um, for, you know, the academic community and, and universities um, as being more collaborative with community and not being, you know, not it being the case necessarily anymore. I mean, there's still a long way to go in this as well. But this idea of studying people or studying communities as opposed to, you know, which is kind of how it's historically been. And we're seeing this shift towards, um, you know, collaborative approaches to research, like the community guiding the process and leading the process. And because they know they know the challenge best. Right. They the folks, folks living on the ground and in those settings, um, they see it, they breathe it, they live it. Um, and so, you know, no amount of formal academic education could necessarily allow us to, to truly experience no. that. Right. It's and it's participatory, yeah. It's participatory innovation, right? Uh, and it's place-based innovation, and it requires multiple knowledges, including indigenous knowledge, knowledge of people who've been, say, farming here for eighty years. You know, people who know the landscape, people who who know the history, but also people who are connected globally. I mean, each of these RCEs, they're in their different ecosystems. They have different livelihood patterns, but there's enough similarity that uh, you know we can share recipes right you're, you're not necessarily I always think you're not sharing a particular technology but you're saying well in our space this is how we do it but here in Saskatchewan maybe you, we use different raw materials right or maybe we end up having different organizations that are kind of like the organizations that are doing it in India or kind of like and 
so uh, so it's it's more like more like a recipe where you can substitute, you know, what's the fruit I'm using in this pie, or or I mean, instead of this sweetener, I'll use a different sweetener, and and it provides the same quality of life, but it might have completely different ingredients in the end because it's yeah. just comparative, and so. Uh, so, you know, shifting from a model of like intellectual property rights and hard technology to one of, no, no, customizing and, and developing recipes to your own local context that work best and then sharing those back again. You know, and there's yeah. nothing better than to say, I can't believe you made this pie that has none of the ingredients that my pie has, <laughs> but we've, uh, and I want to learn from that because then it's, of course, it's, it's, it's the appreciation of difference rather than trying for this homogeneous culture, uh, really seeing, because really, I mean, why on earth would a house in Saskatchewan look like a house in British Columbia, right? Completely different ecosystems. <laughs> We're in the middle of a prairie. Like, why wouldn't we have grasses as part of, you know, straw bale houses, whatever, uh, and, and northern Saskatchewan, again, you, you would expect different type of housing types if we were actually mindful of the capacity and potential of our local ecosystems. And, of course, the designs would be very different if we were mindful of our Indigenous traditions, our local artists, and all those things, too. Yeah. Um, so you can yeah. see how far we have to go. We, we really have not tapped into this potential uh potential yet so much uh i mean some places are but again it's scaling it up and i think an rce can help document and scale things up for the global community and the region right yeah. um so yeah yeah no i love that i don't want to go down this rabbit hole because i could but um <laughs> my 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 work my work is in renewable energy and and energy efficiency and and sort of um you know, sustainable home building and things like that. So that conversation around why do we build homes in Saskatchewan that essentially follow the same code that they would build a house in California? We're not going to go yeah. down that, but like, <laughs> you know, we well, especially to- when you've got farmers, you know, you've got you've got the material like a grassland is an incredibly productive ecosystem. And if we were turning, you know, using that, those living materials in fiber boards, in, in uh, building walls and using the integrity, integrity of those fibers, right? You think about a straw bale and it's our factor compared to what I've got in my, my house, a wonderful house. But on the other hand, you know, it has none of the insulation value that, uh, you know, a large block of of uh you know a bit of uh, a square bale has so uh, anyway yeah that's a whole other conversation yeah. <laughs> but, but again that's just in housing right that's just in housing know. you know that's just and, one and think of what yeah yeah <laughs> uh craig saskatchewan though i guess a shout out to craig people driving by there and look at their little eco community and some of the interesting designs uh yeah. in their building so and it's changing. I mean, I, I, my husband and I built our own house in 2019 and we built a passive house. Like I live in a, a passive home and, nice. and um, yeah, it's incredible the difference. And we still sort of have conversations with people because they just don't believe that we don't need a heating source, right? Like there's a way to design a home for your environment and your local situation and you don't need additional resources but it's still not common knowledge or people are like, well, that can't be possible. And it's like, well, 
it is. It's just the envelope of how we build buildings that is wrong. It's not the right. Yeah. So, yeah, anyways, yeah. a whole a whole other conversation. Well, and, but, and yeah. why build? Why build to a minimum standard? Why not build to the best standard? Right. I mean, you know, that's where sustainable development has this aspirational side. We. We've, we've spent so much time looking at meeting the most minimum needs in terms of regulation and then forcing everybody to do it rather than saying, why don't we have a system which really encourages us to strive in those areas? And, and that's where, I mean, again, where universities and technical institutes can play a role because we've got the surplus, we've got the surplus resources to do that kind of thing. And we don't have kind of the... Uh, you know, most businesses and governments have very limited, you know, financial potential to put into that kind of experimentation, which is, you know, let's face it, you're tinkering, right? You spend a lot of time tinkering without necessarily knowing how is this going to work out. Um, uh, but you need spaces that can do that. And, and so that's in communities, but also campuses that can also do do some of that. So, yeah, absolutely. Um so I'm just going to, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit, Roger. Um, I'm so curious, like, you know, as you're speaking, you're, you're super passionate about this stuff. And um, I'm curious a bit about, you know, your personal story. Um, can you talk a bit about like, you know, where did you, when did you start, you know, being passionate or interested in sustainability or where does your sustainability story begin um you know can you pinpoint a time in your life when you first got interested in this stuff well i mean i i think i was quite open i i mean when i heard about the concept of sustainable development uh it already resonated with me for a few reasons one i've been a boy scout and venture uh so uh and we really took a lot of trips in nature and you know the motto of always leaving a clean a campsite cleaner than when you arrived and i took that personally i would always haul out that can that somebody thrown into the bushes or whatever uh, so i had that uh when i was young i'm a lutheran and so i would go to summer camp um and and that was out on uh i think katepra lake uh, but there was a real connection for me between spirituality and nature and care for others, right? Because you were taught how to care for the other campers and care for your, you know, and in a community way, right? It was a very collective thing. Everybody helped out. Uh, so that was really important. I've also had a long connection to social justice, you know, growing up in Saskatchewan. I grew up on the progressive left. I was involved in cooperatives and so on. And so, again, that that equity idea that's so central to sustainable development, everybody deserves a sustainable livelihood um, and and other species deserve to have sustainable livelihoods. Um, so, again, that notion of equity. And I, I mean, in some ways, I came at sustainable development, not from an environmental perspective, but more from a political philosophy perspective. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I realized, too, is that, you know, politically, we're living in an empire a global empire, uh, an economic empire. And I was very fortunate when I was in Oxford, oddly, I'm a philosopher of religion as well. So I studied the uh, early church in the Roman Empire <laughs> as one of my classes. And I was fascinated by it because here was an instant, the Roman Empire just keeps crumbling. 
But here was an organization that sustained itself within that. And I kind of wondered, well, what, what was it doing? So I wasn't so much interested in the theology of it, but what was it as a social movement? And were there any analogs to that? And so uh, if you look at the early church, one of the things they did was they took the language of the Roman Empire, of the emperor, you know, who was the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, all of these terms. And they said, well, we don't really like that emperor in Rome, but we've got this Jewish rabbi who is our emperor, our Lord of Lords, our King of Kings. Um, and they, they took this, this discourse and transformed it to have the ethical base that they wanted. Um, the Roman Empire was all about having power over other people. And then the early church redefined that to say, no, power is in serving other people, which, again, was a real challenge. But then I said, well, is there anything similar to that globally, where here we are in an economic empire? Is there any language that's using the language of economics and markets, languages of capital and languages of investment, but doing it to promote an ethical base? Um, so things like natural capital, human capital, social capital, uh, or things like investing in future generations, education as a kind of investment, a kind of development that was sustainable development. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, here is the equivalent to what was going on in the Roman Empire. Here we are in our global economic empire and sustainable development is that key language that opens up this empire. Right. It's not a it's not a fuzzy thing at all. I mean, it's a key that has a lot of little uh, spokes on it and they are very precise. So for me, I always find it uh, important as a philosopher. Let's be very mindful of this language that has developed that ends up making people think more deeply about this economic empire that we're living in. Um, and kind of radicalizes it for a greater ethical openness. Uh, because I think natural capital is a more meaningful concept than just, you know, business, physical capital of a business, right? That was the, the, a, a much narrower term. Uh, or human capital, like why shouldn't human beings be invested in? Like why should we always think that investments you know, are only for building up large factories and, and so on. Anyway, so that's, uh, uh, and that capital is measured, you know, building up capacity. Now, now we talk more about capability and capacity, but it all originated by looking at those terms in a new way and seeing, seeing that that language wasn't something to run away from, right? I mean, a lot of people on the left run away from the language of business and markets and so on. And it's like, no, no, you know, there's important ideas there, but they're just not, uh, hadn't been brought into the level that, that what sustainable development did. So, so that's where I, yeah. <laughs> if you want to really know, it's like, oh, okay, yes, here's the language that paralleled this. And I'm always a big person on not reinventing the wheel. So if there's a strategy that's working, um, that's been proven, right? Um, the other thing I, I looked at actually in a similar vein was uh, open source software, open, open licensing, because there was a case in point where, again, they took copyright law, which was meant to privatize and narrow who owned things. And they said, well, we could use copyright law to open things up. So, you know, if you use the software, you need to share it with others because that's part of the core license. I give it to you freely, share and share alike, creative commons. 
but that's built on copyright law, which was meant to be very restrictive and privatizing, but instead mm-hmm. used it to create an open space. Um, so, and that's what my PhD work was, was looking at sustainable development and open source software and how those two worlds met. Um, anyway, that's, that's another story. Yeah. No, that's really interesting, Roger. I, I, and thank you for sharing that, that whole story and, and, and so much about your background. I think that's important and it's important for us as, as individuals too, to kind of think about our own stories and our own paths and, and how those things led us to where we are today. But um, yeah, that's really interesting around the, the idea that you shared around, you know, using concepts that we, you know, that are not reinventing the wheel and, and speaking in terms of things that we, we already understand or, or think we understand, have a good understanding of and, and sort of reshaping them to, to meet a more um, ethical, more equitable future, right? And so... It's recycling, um, yeah. right? Recycling language, right? Because everybody everybody's reading... You know, when I grew up in the 70s, 80s, there wasn't really even a business section of the paper, but now it's like half the half the newspaper will be the section on business. And so if that's where people are being educated, um, then add on, say, okay, well, let's talk more about this idea of capital as it relates to capability, as it relates to everybody's investments. So not just not just wealthy individuals investing in companies, but people investing in their own livelihoods. And why don't this, those investments matter? And what kind of subsidies do I get for investing in my own education, say, or my own, you know, what, what supports did you get when you built your own, your own house, for example? That's a major investment. Um, and, uh, or do we privilege certain types of investment to the detriment of, you know, ordinary people's investments, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such an important thing to to kind of remember and and for anybody, you know, working in the space and trying to move move things forward, move any anything forward, um, you know, speaking or being able to use the language of the commons or or the, you know, the the words or language of of the times in a way that sort of um, is innovative and, and is different um but still use those same concepts. I think that's really key to yeah, to how, how we move this conversation forward. So yeah, thank you for sharing that, Roger. Um, so just as a way to, to wrap up our conversation, um, I'm really curious about, so, you know, you talked about a lot of this stuff from the very, you know, global and, and philosophical perspective. Um, and I'm curious about your, your own day-to-day life and, and the things that you do, like, how do you incorporate sustainability and environmental consciousness and social consciousness into your day-to-day life. I know a lot of our listeners are are kind of struggling or trying to find ways to to live their life that is in alignment with some of these concepts. And so, yeah, I'm just curious, um, just as a way to finish us off, if you could share a bit about that. Sure. So, I mean, Part of it is, uh, you know, I, I we have an annual awards program as an RCE. So every May we award about 20 to 25 sustainable development projects. And a lot of those, we've been doing it since 2008, I think. So think about that 20, 25 projects since, uh, you know, for how many years? Well, you get pretty, all of a sudden you start seeing, oh, I could do that. I could try that at my house or or now I know the person who could help me out, right? Because <laughs> these are kind of local experts within our region who are working on these things. And so um, part of it, that's part of it. Part of it is as a philosopher, I want to spend more time thinking 
And it means being kind of lazy. And once you're lazy, that's a real resource because, because sustainable development, if you're having to do a huge amount of effort to make it happen, you probably haven't thought enough about the system you're in. So for example, I, I'm letting my lawn go to whatever it's going to. And the bees love the weeds and things that are showing up. I pull out a few things here and there, but it's a much more, who would have thought my lawn could be a productive <laughs> ecosystem just by not spending so much time with it or being very targeted in terms of introducing new plants, new species, or seeing what's growing somewhere and, and seeing if it can move along. Uh, at our cottage, I think a lot of people's creativity happens at their cottages because maybe there's less regulation or or they're willing to experiment. And so we've got a we've got a space out near Rowan's Ravine where we have a trailer, fair enough, but then we also had an eight by 12 shed. Uh, and we kept innovating on this eight by 12 shed that was a bunkhouse, but we added features, added features. And all of a sudden I realized, holy smokes, I've created a tiny house. I hadn't thought about it, but I was creating a tiny home out of this eight by 12 bunkhouse by adding features and so on. Um, and I didn't even realize uh, what I was up to. The other thing that makes things easier, I love organizations and for a lot of young people, they don't participate in organizations, even though those organizations are screaming out for young people to be there. Um, and so uh, for me, you know, moving motions at an annual meeting, like this, you know, if it's a cooperative or a credit union, that belongs to the members. And it doesn't take, it's one night a year and <laughs> writing up a resolution that takes maybe 10 minutes that can move millions of dollars if it gets passed at the an annual meeting. Or if you end up on a board of directors, if you're the one voice that helps educate the others, or you, you know, you work with them for their ideas, they work with your ideas. Um, you know, Saskatchewan is probably the weirdest place on the planet in terms of the amount of economic resources that are owned by people, right? Whether it's the Crown Corporation, small and medium-sized enterprises, family farms. I know a lot of things have gone corporate, but, you know, there are still family farms that care about long-term future generations. The fact that we have our Crown Corporations that are, again, publicly owned and accountable to citizenry. Even just sending a letter to the government saying, why aren't you measuring the sustainable development goals? Why aren't you reporting on these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, making the bureaucracy work for you in terms of sustainability, because we signed on to these 17 UN sustainable development goals. That means the federal government has obligations. That means the province and our municipalities have obligations. So always, whenever you're communicating, learn those 17 goals because you don't have to then persuade somebody to do it. It's like, no, you agreed to do this, right? Mm -hmm. This was your job. And also every co-op credit union on the planet, the seventh principle of every co-op is a commitment to advance the sustainable development of their communities. So if your credit union that's sitting on $600 million worth of assets has no sustainable development policy, you can say this is one of your seven principles of what it yeah. means to be a co-op or credit union. Um, and that is almost effortless, but it just means showing up at the meeting and <laughs> making some motions that demand action. And of course, there'll be resistance, but if you show up year after year after year and they see, well, you're not going away and sustainability is it's only getting worse, right, in terms of what's happening to the planet, then you effectively become the leader, right? In the absence of leadership, all of a sudden people look to you 
And it's not necessarily that you have tremendous skills or whatever. It's just, no, you were persistently showing up. So, so and that can be in any small town or a coffee shop or whatever, right? Uh, uh, you know, if, I mean, I guess the point is, if there was a place on the planet that could rapidly transform itself organizationally based on the ethics of those organizations and the power of ordinary people to move sustainable development, Saskatchewan is probably the best place on the planet. And we have one of the highest rates of volunteerism on the planet. So if volunteerism is a key way of mobilizing to get things done and Saskatchewan people know how to cooperate, right? Throw away these binaries of left and right and whatever and start cooperating. All of a sudden, Saskatchewan, I mean, we're, you know, you had the industrial revolution. We're in that space for the sustainability revolution. So yeah. a longer answer than you wanted, but that's what I do. Love organizations. I show up at meetings. Roger, that is honestly the bet. That is one of the best ways um, to, to I've ever had someone finish off a podcast. Um, oftentimes when I ask <laughs> that question, oftentimes, you know, we talk about these things, um, you know, that you can do in your own home and in your own life. And there's still, you know, this inherent individualism and uh, about that. Right. And, and I so appreciate as, you know, as someone who grew up, um, you know, in, in rural, small town farming, Saskatchewan, and, and as recently as two years ago, moved back rurally, um, we're starting to see that more in our small communities, but honestly, our grandparents and great grandparents were better at it. And so, Oh, they were, um, you know, but there's a were. legacy there. There's a legacy there. I mean, you can ask other people and they will cooperate or they'll think about it. And if we think if we could get past the barriers, the artificial barriers that our grandparents didn't, right, between First Nations people and, and pioneer settlers or, or and all of the immigration that we, we could have, right, there's, there's, there's farmers you know, vegetable farmers and ranchers being displaced because of climate change all over the planet. And they have new ways of farming. If we invited those people here, you know, so not only doing the cereal crops, but the value added and all of that, uh, you know, and so, so you've got all of that that's just waiting <laughs> and wants to be brought together, right? It's, yeah. it's just sitting next door, you know, yeah. anyway. No, I this like I said, Roger. This is so great, and I think our listeners will will learn a lot from what you had to share there. And I know, I know, I have, and I find that um, I'm also really involved in organizations, whether it's local to my my small 350 person community or in Saskatoon or elsewhere. Um, you know, actively involved in boards and community organizations. And I think, um, you know, even myself, I don't always think about that as a contribution from a sustainability or sustainable development um, perspective, but it, it it really is. And so I think when people are thinking about ways that they can make change or be a part of change, um, like you said, showing up to your um, you know, I'm a part of a credit union. Yeah. I think I've been to the annual general meeting one time, which is like, yeah, again, yeah. it's, I'm involved in lots of other things, but it's something that it, yeah, it's good to be reminded that those are ways to, um, to take action. Put it on the agenda. Put it on the agenda. These are, these are your resources, right? These aren't somebody else's resources. These are your own resources. So there's a moral responsibility, a stewardship, because, uh, you know, particularly for those organizations, but even, even if you're investing in companies, right, it's still, you own it as an investor. So think about where you're, 
putting your pension and all of that other stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Roger, thank you so much. I feel like we could probably have a, a very long and wonderful coffee conversation in the future, but um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I know I learned a lot and um, I know our listeners will learn a lot from this too. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it as well. tuning into this week's episode of the sustainable stories podcast this podcast is hosted by myself jenna inglot as well as roxanne wagner from sage sustainable solutions consulting for a full list of episodes as well as more information about sage check us out online at sagesustainable.com and as always we welcome your feedback thoughts and suggestions catch you next time